Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, our producer, Jim Swift, reminded me of something yesterday that I had forgotten. Yesterday turns out to have been our 600th uh, Bulwark Podcast. 600. Number, number 600. I, I wish I could tell you how we got here. <laughs> and of course, there was a long string of podcasts that we did for the Weekly Standard before that. But again, uh, didn't necessarily think we were going to be around this long. So, and again, thank you uh, very much to all of our guests, uh, to uh, all of the listeners to this uh, podcast, uh, and looking forward to the next 600, which makes me feel tired. I just, I, uh, joining me on the 601st uh, Bulwark podcast is our good friend, former Republican congressman from Florida, David Jolly. How are you, David? I'm doing great, Charlie, and congratulations on 600. Look, you've got a lot of loyal listeners, and it's because you put out a great product. So thanks well, for what yeah. you're doing. And thanks yeah. for what Jim's doing as well. Shout out to him. Uh, well, we, you know, we're making friends and influencing people. Not, not always. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. You, <laughs> you, you and I have been, <laughs> you and I have been kind of scraping our knees lately. So, uh, I, I want to talk about you, you, you had a really interesting, uh, piece of medium, you know, a new center right party won't work. Um, and I think you and I agree, although, um, I will, we'll, we'll work that through before we get to that. We have to talk about what's going to happen today with the whole January 6th commission and Kevin sure. McCarthy lining up with the sedition caucus. And so, um, we ought to, uh, we had to, you know, break open the Kraken here. By the way, whatever happened to the Kraken? You know, remember the Kraken was a big deal for a while. Let loose the Kraken. And the Kraken is what? Uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, for all the media work we do and for as, as much as we talk politics, there are some issues that I've just intellectually decided to take a full pass on. And that's Kraken's one of them. So yeah, uh, you're I, talking I, to the wrong guy. Well, I, I just realized that I missed it. I, that right. I, that I, I mean, they should have on January 6th, they should have stood up there and said, and we're going to go to the Capitol and release the Kraken. Somebody must have said that. I mean, that, 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 was, that was the Kraken. Well, in any case... As everyone listening to this podcast probably knows, uh, the House of Representatives is going to vote uh, sometime, I believe later today, uh, to authorize the bipartisan uh, 9-11 style January 6th commission. And they will do this over the opposition of Kevin McCarthy, who reversed himself late yesterday and made and is whipping the vote. So the leadership's official position on this is you're going to vote no. What's not clear is whether or not it's going to work for McCarthy, because there are multiple reports that the Republican caucus is very divided on this, that there are folks who did not vote to convict, I mean, did not vote to impeach Donald Trump for his role in the riot, but will vote to investigate this in the 9-11 commission. So let's go to the tape here. Here's Kevin McCarthy on with Laura Ingram uh, trying to spin his opposition to a bipartisan commission that he appeared that he was negotiated by one of his own members just last week john katka let's let's play that uh, kevin mccarthy congressman um the democrats are claiming that you are covering up for insurrectionists by opposing <laughs> this commission your <laughs> response not at all. There's already four investigations. You mentioned one, Department of Justice, already has arrested 445 people with approximately another 100 uh, arrests to come. This would just get in the way of that. You have two investigations going on in Senate committees. You also have the architect of the Capitol was given $10 million to have a full review of the Capitol of ways to secure it. 
And now we want to put a political commission to go forward. And you raised a very good point, Laura. Remember, this commission, the appointment of the chair goes to Schumer and Pelosi, and they appoint the staff. All the staff would be Democrats. Yeah, okay. So... David Jolly, this this is uh, it is uh, duplicative. Uh, it would get in the way of other negotiate uh, the other other investigations, <laughs> sure. and, and and the staff would be appointed. Um, it, it 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 is interesting the degree to which Kevin McCarthy is is willing to go to to do the bidding of the guy down in the Orange Versailles because this this had been negotiated by one of his own guys, and all the reports would suggest that he had input into it, and he threw the guy under the bus. Yeah, Charlie, that's a politician fumbling for an answer right there. And there, there's so much to unpack, so many inconsistencies. Let's start first with his suggestion that Department of Justice already has an investigation. The Department of Justice has a criminal investigation where they are bringing to prosecution individuals involved in this case. They are also looking at what a criminal network might look like. But this commission would not focus on the the bringing charges, criminal charges against individuals, this would focus on what was the network, what was the infrastructure that perhaps led to this event, where were the security pitfalls, where was the breakdown in the law enforcement response and the National Guard response, what were the communications among our national leaders in that moment. None of that is actually being discussed or investigated by the Department of Justice. Secondly, when Kevin McCarthy says we already have other congressional committees investigating it, and look, I, I do think Democrats already have jurisdiction to investigate that through oversight committees, appropriations committees, and they should do so. But I would ask Kevin McCarthy, well, then why did you need a special Benghazi commission? Why did you need a special Planned Parenthood commission? And I can say that is the only Republican to vote against a Planned Parenthood committee mm. because my statement was we already have five committees investigating this. Why do we need another? That wasn't Kevin McCarthy's position when he was going after Democrats, trying to put the screws on them on a culture war issue that he thought would be politically uh, important for Republicans. So what we are hearing from Kevin McCarthy is nothing more than politics in this moment. And I believe it's also fear, Charlie, because the focus of this commission would inevitably come down to what did Republican leaders know and how did they behave in that moment? I don't believe there was this grand orchestration of Republican elected leaders preceding the events of January 6th. I do think we might uncover that some of the Trump political network was behind the organizing of the January 6th event, the organizing of the rally, the invitation. We know that the elements of, of what happened were Donald Trump laid the predicate with the big lie. He and his team issued the invitation to come to Washington on January 6th, and then he gave the charge to go to the Capitol. So we do know there was some political committee orchestration likely tied to the larger Trump universe. But in terms of the events of January 6th and how our leaders behaved, what did Kevin McCarthy know? When did he know it? How did he respond? And has he misrepresented since then Donald Trump's role in the events? And I think that's clear. Because on January 13th, Kevin McCarthy's first real public statements about the event, he said, Donald Trump bears responsibility. Bears responsibility were his words on the House floor. And now he has taken that back. And I think Kevin McCarthy knows that just as the Benghazi committee was derailed, perhaps his ascension to the speakership after Boehner, this January 6th commission could derail Kevin McCarthy's ascension to the speakership if Republicans ever took back the House. 
We also need to put this in some context. Uh, you know, Tim Miller over at the Bulwark uh, has a great piece about the Republican insurrection erasure. The, they're weak, and he go, goes through all the things that have happened. You know, the witness to the president's support for domestic terror assault in the Capitol refuses to testify. Congressman tries to retcon his support for overturning the election on national TV. A Republican campaign committee rewards members who tried to stop the steal. You know, the senator who spearheaded the legislative coup has given massive platforms to promote his book about being silenced. You have congressmen who are saying that it looked like just a a tourist, uh, you know, regular uh, tourist visit yeah. to to the Capitol. They're trying to erase. Here's the problem with all this. You know, m- memories aren't that easily erased because we saw it and there were pictures. And I think it's interesting right. that not that not everybody in McCarthy's caucus is going full Stefanik. Um, you know, by the time people listen to this, they may know the answer. How many Republicans will vote for this? But Politico is reporting that there's real panic among uh, the leadership because, you know, dozens, dozens of Republicans sure, are, are sure. privately considering voting. And you know how that goes. They say sure. it in private. And then basically they, you know, they, they you know you know, pull the floor lock and, and vote for him. Why do you think they yeah. decided to whip this, by the way? By the way, could you first explain? Sure. When, I, I was trying to explain this to somebody. When when they make the official position to whip it, that doesn't make the vote mandatory, but it's tremendous pressure. I mean, it's it's a whole it different look. Explain how that works. You you hit on something very important. So there are votes where where leadership does not whip it. Often they'll say the position of the conference is yay or nay. And then there are votes that move up to where leadership is really whipping votes to try to keep their caucus fully in line. And the interesting thing that I'm curious about, uh, Charlie, is this. If if a vote is being whipped and you're going to vote against that, typically you're talking a handful of people, if any, that vote against a, a leadership whipped vote. And if so, you kind of have that conversation. Like when I voted against the Ryan budget as a freshman member of Congress, I had to talk to Boehner and say, look, I can't vote for the Ryan budget in my district. I promised them I wouldn't. And he gave me a pass, right? But it was it was a negotiated conversation where he understood. What happens for people who just clearly violate a whip vote, and this is what I'm curious if it's going on, is you lose the resources of the NRCC. You lose the okay. fundraising network. Oh, so there's, there's Kevin McCarthy, real cl- Okay. Right. Yeah, if Kevin McCarthy said tells K Street, don't raise money for Congressman so-and-so because he's, he's going against this. So I'm curious how hard they're whipping it. But Charlie, I think there's two lanes here. Some people are covering up, right? They, they want to erase, as you mentioned, the events of January 6th, Donald Trump's complicity, Republican complicity. Others are making the argument, which sounds good, but it fails a fundamental point of reason that we need to move on, right? We need to Mm -hmm. move past the events of January 6th, focus on the here and now, the economy, the pandemic, whatever. Republicans want to focus on socialism. The problem is, as long as Donald Trump remains the person who's pulling the levers within the party, as long as he's propagating the big lie that's being amplified by a large portion of Republicans across the country, we can't look past it because it's a here and now. It's still a present danger. It's it's and ongoing. It's ongoing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's Liz Cheney's point, where the Republican conference says we need leaders who aren't looking backwards or looking forwards. Liz Cheney's looking forward. She's looking at right now the threat that's that's continuing by propagating the big lie. So um Trump, the, the former guy, issued a statement um, saying, you know, sh- we should shut this down. Absolutely no uh, January 6th commission. I don't know whether that influenced Kevin McCarthy's uh, position. Uh, he seems to be operating under the 
uh, under the assumption that he just he will not do anything that will anger the orange guy, just will not do anything that might lead to a statement uh, criticizing him. And also, this has now become the line on Fox News. And and, and as loath as I am uh, to play Tucker Carlson, uh, he's laying it out. And, and you can see that the Tucker Carlson and the folks at Fox News are whipping this vote as well. Let's play this short uh, clip from Tucker Carlson last night. The top Republican on the House Homeland Security Committee is apparently pushing for this 9-11 style commission. One anonymous House Republican told The Hill that anywhere from between 30 and 50 Republicans might join CatCo in voting for this farce. What are they voting for? They're voting to give Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden more power, power they do not deserve, power they did not win in November. Republican voters deserve to know the names of every congressional Republican who votes for this farce, for the myth-making that is being used right now to strip you of your constitutional rights. What? They should know which of the representatives is playing along with this poisonous hoax. This poisonous hoax, a poisonous yeah. hoax of a commission trying to get to the bottom of yeah. one of the most dramatic moments in American political history. Yeah. Charlie, <laughs> I would say Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, what are you so afraid of? Well, because it, if there's... It, it, if there's no Republican complicity, Democrats can't manufacture, can't fabricate Republican involvement in the events of January 6th. If there's nothing there, there's nothing there. This is this is Donald Trump calling for a cover up of his instigation of an insurrection that tried to topple our republic. And it's Kevin McCarthy and Tucker Carlson and every other person who worships at the lap of Donald Trump saying, yes, sir, we'll help you cover this up. Well, you ask David Jolly, you, you, you ask the key question, what are they afraid of? You know, what, why would the Republicans want to block a probe of the insurrection? I don't think we should overthink this. So let's go. Let's yeah, go to the tape. Right. Uh, let's go to the tape. Our, our, our friends at the Republican Accountability Project have this great video out there um, asking the question, you want to know why the Republican leader won't support the January 6th commission? Here's why. Here's a here's the audio of of the video. There is real concern among a number of members of my own party about a January 6th commission. There was fraud. fraud. Massive voter fraud. Dominion machines that were problematic. The election was stolen. 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 President Trump won this election. Our constitution was violated. You got to go to the streets and be violent. Today, American patriots start kicking ass. More bad behavior is what we need. You can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully and allow Joe Biden to become our president. That commission threatens people in my party who may have been playing a role they should not have been playing. Yeah, it, uh, that's uh, that's Liz Cheney. Uh, the commission threatens people in her party who were playing a role they should not have been playing, who were encouraging violence, using the word violence. Uh, people saying we should not allow the peaceful transfer of power. People saying, you know, it's time to go and kick ass. Uh, yeah, I, could, I can certainly imagine why uh, folks, members of the Sedition Caucus, would not be anxious to have a commission uh, that would have prestige and uh, subpoena power. Yeah, Charlie, there's a thread in Liz Cheney's comments over the past two weeks that I am I am following very closely, and I, I don't want to stoke a conspiracy here, but I think it's it's deserving of observation. Uh, as, as the events with Liz Cheney began to go down about two weeks ago, I believe it was Jake Sherman with Punchbowl News who said who painted a picture of the team Cheney approach to all this and their thoughts. And one of the points of Cheney's political team was that Kevin McCarthy would never be Speaker of the House. And it jumped off the page to me when I, I, I believe it was Jake. I apologize if I'm misattributing it. 
it jumped off the page to me that Liz Cheney's team, almost as a declarative, said, Kevin McCarthy will never be Speaker of the House. And the reason I'm curious about that is the numbers don't support Liz Cheney's placement within the yeah. Republican Party, right? This idea that somehow the Cheney wing is now going to take over the party. That's not the case. So Liz Cheney wouldn't be saying that somehow she's going to lead the caucus away from Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump. What it suggests to me, and if you follow Liz Cheney's consistent comments along the way, that Republicans in the House have reason to be fearful of a January 6th commission because they were doing things they shouldn't have done. I do wonder, and again, not to stoke conspiracy, but I believe it's a, it's a fair observation. I wonder if Liz Cheney believes that Kevin McCarthy knows something that simply can't stand the light of day and it could topple him, at least from his leadership role in the caucus, should it, should it be learned by the American people. Why, why does Washington even believe, though, that Kevin McCarthy will reveal that? Yeah, so this, this um, raises some interesting issues. You know, I mentioned earlier that I believe the House already has jurisdiction, right? The House Appropriations Committee has oversight over all of our law enforcement agencies, certainly Capitol Police. They could investigate this already. I, if, if a member of Congress, I believe, and I, I don't know all the minutiae of the rules, but if if a member of Congress does not want to testify before one of its own committees, I don't believe they can be subpoenaed. And so I think what would happen is a an independent commission might have greater authority to oh. subpoena a member of Congress. But I still believe members of Congress have wide latitude um, to declare certain privileges and protections that prevent them from revealing information. I do think if the commission started subpoenaing, subpoenaing <laughs> members of Congress, you may see this litigated and we could almost end up in this Don McGahn flashback of this could go on for 18 months or 24 months before we ever actually see testimony from someone like Kevin McCarthy. Well, um, bring it on one way, one way or another. Okay. So let, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, because, um, once again, last week, uh, we, we heard from folks like us, let's be honest about this, uh, who, uh, were one time, you know, um, Geo, either part of the Republican Party or GOP adjacent. And um, we had a new group of uh, former Republican uh, officials uh, who signed on a letter and, you know, a, a call for American renewal um, in favor of a lot of really, really good things, saying, you know, it's time to either reform the Republican Party or replace the Republican Party. Uh, I signed this letter. So I, I, I have to confess to you, David, I'm feeling a little bit guilty about this because I signed the letter, but, but then I, but then I wrote an op-ed saying, Hey guys, um, this kind of, this kind of feels like tilting at windmills. So, but because I mean, what are you, what, what are you waiting for in terms of the, neither to either fix the Republican party or like, I mean, guys, I mean, how many canaries need to die in the coal mine? How, how many red lines need to be crossed? And I, I think kind of what triggered me was this op-ed piece signed by our friends. These are people I admire. These are not people that I want to criticize, but they had a line in there saying that's right. The, the ouster of Liz Cheney does not mark the end, you know, but rather the beginning of the fight for the soul of the Republican party. And I was read that and I went, you know, that's just, that's just not true. I mean, that may sound good in your head, but it's not true. That fight is over. It's been lost. The Republican Party uh, has been taken over by the conspiracists, the cranks, the bigots, the, the, the people who believe the big lie. And anyone who thinks that the Republican Party as it exists now can be reformed, I think, is 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 incredibly naive. So that was having signed the same thing. I, um, but, but, uh, okay, but but you but I think it, it sort of it reflects the ambiguity. Like, where the hell do we go? I mean, I, I, I don't yeah, want to jump right. to become a Democrat. 
Um, I, there, there's, you know, if I say there's, there's, there's hope in the Republican party, that's, I mean, that's, that's silly at, at this particular point, but so where do we end up? So you address the same thing. You wrote a piece for medium, um, a new yep. center right party won't work. Now I had addressed the, the aspect of the fact that, uh, staying in the Republican party won't work, but then you, so I, I sort of, you know, did one kneecap. You did the other kneecap. <laughs> <laughs> of our friends of our uh, say, friends no i know our, i know a, a new center right party won't work okay so david jolly explain yeah. where you're at there because you know i'm thinking we're 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 out the center right party sounded good to me so tell me why that won't work yeah no i appreciate that and and charlie your op-ed caught my attention specifically mm-hmm. because um because you had signed the letter and i thought okay something more is going on now uh, behind this group. And look, I, I think it's important you recognize we are all friends and mm-hmm. I think we all support what everybody's doing, which is trying to provide some course correction to the party and to our politics. So so God bless them. I, I encourage this new center-right alliance that is emerging. But I, I've, I have been involved in this space now for five years. You know, I, I God bless Liz Cheney for coming forward now. But to your point, there's been a lot of Republicans that started this war five years ago. This isn't just the start. We're we're way down the road here. Um, but but here's the fundamental flaw, I think, in in what they're currently trying to execute. And and I hope we can all kind of merge our strategies and interests together. The two flaws that I that I have identified is the numbers simply. Well, let's start with agreeing the premise the Republican Party is not worth saving. Because even if you rid it of Trump and Trumpism, it would still require making common cause with the likes of Josh Hawley and Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I say you can't, you can't find common cause with anti-democratic, illiberal politicians under the same tent. So that notion of saving the party to me is off the table. And I think you and I agree on that. In terms of uh, building a center-right coalition, a center-right party, I just don't believe the numbers are there. And, and I know a lot of disaffected Republicans are desperately wanting to create a platform where they can park their center-right conservatism and somehow expect that everybody rushes to this one spot on the left-right ideolog- ideological spectrum. The numbers just don't support that. Um, Reuters does this monthly poll, how do you identify RD or, or no party? And about a third are Demo- self-identify Repub- uh, Democrats, yeah. about 26, 28% self-identify Republicans, and then 40% self-identify as independents. My point to this coalition of friends is that 40% is not wandering the political wilderness looking for a center-right coalition. That's not what informs their independence from politics. They're actually rejecting the prescriptive dogma that parties suggest you have to adhere to. Whether it's left, right, center, right, center, left, middle, they don't want to be told that to be part of a political organization, a party, we all have to coalesce around this shared ideology. What they want, I believe what the numbers prove out, that 40%, you know, can be all over the map, but it is a rejection of dogmatic party organizations. And so what I am working on through the Serve America movement, we've talked about mm-hmm. it before, the SAM party in some states, our theory of the case that that is really working out well suggests we're not asking you to subscribe 
to a shared ideology. We're asking you to subscribe to the notion of problem solving in politics, problem solving in government, accountability, transparency, that if we can come together around shared principles, shared values, shared governing uh, visions, the ideologies are, it's better if they're disparate, right? We want disparate and competing and contrasting ideologies in the SAM coalition. So I appreciate what the group is doing. First, trying to save the party. I don't think it can be saved. Second, by suggesting a center-right party can emerge. I don't think the numbers support it. And at the end of the day, the fundamental flaw, the fatal flaw in all of this, Charlie, is it's just Republicans talking to Republicans. And we're never going to expand a political coalition unless Republicans and Democrats and independents can somehow figure out a big tent coalition. That's what I'm trying to do at the Serve America movement at SAM. We are seeing success. It is for a lot of people. It's not for everybody. Some people find that they want a dogmatic organization because ideology informs their political viewpoints. That's fine. But for that 40% that keeps showing up as saying, we don't want dogmatic associations, I think there's an opportunity to build something new. Okay, so you you write here um, that they're looking to affiliate their politics not with dogma, but with problem solving, with democracy protection and fair elections, with accountability, transparency, which I agree with completely, and and I think this this other group uh, also yeah. agrees with it. Um, uh, you know, democ and, and this we've talked about this before. The and I, I you don't put it this way, but I, I do think of the, our, our politics as you know being on a right left axis, um, and sure. then of course there's the vertical axis of of rule of law, democracy, and and I think yeah, that there, right. there there's more of a possibility for this coalition on that vertical axis. But but let me let me just push on you a little bit here because I'm trying yeah. part of this please, we're, trying, we're, we're we're trying to figure this out. Okay, so yeah, people don't want dogma. I agree, but they want problem solving. I agree. Yeah, what pro- what problems do they want to solve? Because I guess there's a part of me that is cynical enough to think that, yes, people want fair elections, accountability and transparency, but they want tangible stuff. And that the the, yeah, the percentage yeah. of, of a sort of good government, people like that, this all sounds good, but in our tribal polarized, you know, what's in it for me world, th- that's a small part of the election. So talk to me about problem yeah. solving. You know, yeah, lo- we love this conversation. Yeah. So as a baseline, let's let's check off electoral reform mm-hmm. and democracy protection because those are one and the same. Yes. People want to know that all candidates and all voters have access, uh, equal access to the ballot and to the election platform, right? So does that mean open primaries, jungle primaries? Um, does that mean public campaign financing? What can we do like Alaska has done that allows all candidates and all voters to meet at the same ballot and actually voters are empowered to elevate candidates regardless of party affiliation. That protects our democracy and empowers more voters. That is part and parcel to any kind of new party emergence. But let's talk about uh, about problem solving and, and just a quick hit list, right? Um, take education. We need greater funding of public schools. Our public schools should be the best public school system in the entire world. Republicans will reject that idea. But we also need to empower parents. Democrats will reject that idea. If a parent has a kid in a failing school, they should be able to move them. They shouldn't be constrained that they have to go to this one place. That might mean charter schools. It might mean vouchers. It might mean solutions that get them out of a failing public school environment. But it doesn't mean, Republicans, that we abandon public schools and stop investing in them. You can talk about guns and say we can protect gun rights through greater regulation, not less regulation. And it actually brings the problem together to a solution. And let me take on one of the hardest issues of all, Charlie. And 
And the politician in me uh, always gets a little nervous to bring up this issue, but it's an important one. People say, what about the abortion issue? What about the life issue? Yep. How can you mm-hmm. ever solve an issue like that? My answer is just go to Roe versus Wade, but not for reasons that the left wants and not for reasons that the right want. Let's accept what Roe did. Roe was actually a problem-solving case because it said, we are going to fundamentally protect a woman's right to make her healthcare decisions and her reproductive decisions, right? And the left rallies around that. It's this litmus test. Roe is everything to that cause. Roe also says there is a balancing test, and at some point there is a state interest in the viable fetus. And that is the, that is the core of Roe. It's actually the balancing test that says we are going to protect a woman's right uh, to her own reproductive decisions. But for Republicans, guess what Roe also did? Roe also established a state interest in protecting a viable fetus. We can actually approach some very difficult issues by recognizing that there are answers all over the left-right spectrum. The problem is the parties have set up shop on only one side or the other. And to my friends trying to build a center-right coalition, my point is you're repeating the major failure point of our two major parties, which is you're just saying that the point on the left-right spectrum they chose is wrong. And so you're going to choose a different one. When I think what independent political-minded people want is just informed, reasoned problem-solving in their politics. And if we can create a platform, a coalition that can focus on that, that can deliver that, I think we've got a shot Though there are historic hurdles in front of us, we got a shot at disrupting our politics. You know, I've spent a lot of time actually uh, rereading um, materials about Roe versus Wade and going back and forth on all of this. And, um, you know, the, 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 the real puzzle in terms of public opinion is, is that overwhelmingly uh, 60 to 70 percent of voters say they, they support Roe. But um, most people, even though most people say they support Roe, the most favor restrictions uh, on abortion that Roe does not permit. You know, for example, Roe versus Wade only allows limited, you know, uh, limited restrictions during the second trimester, mostly involving health. But but less than 30 percent of Americans say that abortion should be generally legal in the second trimester, uh, trimester. So, the Gallup numbers. And and a lot of people also oppose abortion in specific circumstances, like, for example, if a fetus has Down syndrome, even during the sure. first trimester. So, you know, when you look at the numbers, legal in most cases. Um, is as actually only around 15%. Illegal in all cases is only about 20%. Legal in um, only a few cases, it's about, it's, you know, between 30 and 40%. And legal in any um, case is about 30%. So people are all over the map. I guess I, I, I could I could make the, the exact op- opposite argument that you just made, that in fact, overturning Roe versus Wade returns this issue to the political sphere as opposed to the absolutist sphere and that state legislatures are going to have to debate this. They're going to have to work out legislation and they would have to engage in compromises that might actually turn out reflecting public opinion more than what we have right now. And, and I understand that approach. Um, what I would say it is I believe there's a fundamental federal protection for a woman's right to make her own decisions. And so if some states were to uh, restrict that woman's right to make that decision, you do get into a balancing test that in some people's opinion is going to get out of balance between personal liberty and a state's interest in protecting viability. Yeah. Where I do think there's opportunity, Charlie, though, and again, it, 
you really have to approach this dispassionately to have this conversation. And some people will will forever be on one side of the spectrum and say, absolute woman's right to choose all the way through nine months through delivery. Don't even touch it. You'll have absolutism on the other side saying the woman shouldn't have any choice at all, right? Um, but I do think there is an area that that is worth examining, which is, is viability in 2021 different than viability in 1973? Because the answer is clearly yes, right? Well, the advancement and that, yeah, of medicine. And sure. so is that balancing test worth revisiting? And I think what you're seeing is states are trying to revisit that balancing test on the premise that viability and science and health advancements are different from 1973 to 2021. I prefer to have that tested in the federal courts uh, with a single decider, uh, the highest court in the land, but I understand the approach of the the state by state. So now you said that we need to approach this in a dispassionate way, which of course is theoretically true, but that is the least likely thing to actually happen. In fact, we, we have David, you are not naive. But that is, I'm not naive that, bringing up this issue. Yeah, I could have yeah, avoided yeah, it yeah. altogether. Well, well, okay. That's, I, yeah, I, I mean, I just like, here's the reality check. This is going to be the most passionate issue that we're going to experience over the next six months. And, 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 and in fact, passion doesn't quite capture it. It's going to be at a level of really hyper emotional hysteria. And so um, the last thing that we're, I mean, of course, it would be nice to say, you know, we should put on our, you know, you know, our, our smoking jackets and light up the pipe and say, let's be dispassionate about this. But this is not <laughs> what's going to happen in the real world, David. No, but but to the point, the point of this and the point of what we're doing at the Serve America movement at SAM and what I think our politics needs is you ask the question, okay, what about the real issues, right? Because everybody likes to operate in this good government reform space and ah, it's all roses coming up and rainbows. But you ask a very important question where the rubber meets the road. What does problem solving mean for healthcare and guns and education? Yeah. Well, child ch ch care, minimum wage, um, and, in, in and, infrastructure. I mean, those, those strike me as, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'm telling you is we need a coalition that actually answers that with new ideas and new reason. The center-right coalition, not only is it, as I've mentioned, I believe, repeating the failure point, but it's also just dragging the ideology of the last 30 years forward. You know, I made the statement that I'm afraid a new center-right alliance would measure their success not by how they move our t politics forward, but by the, how they move our politics backwards. Yeah. I don't want and, – and here's here's the other thing. We talk about bringing people together of competing ideolo ideologies. What we're trying to do at SAM and what I think our politics needs to recognize, and, and if either major party would recognize this, they would find more success, is that each of us individually um, – our own politics are all over the left-right spectrum, right? You might be in one spot on abortion, one spot on guns, one spot on education, one spot on immigration. You might be left to right within your own politics, but Republicans demand that you are over on the right on everything. Democrats over on the left on everything. And this new center-right coalition would say, you got to be center-right on everything. I don't think that's where most people's politics live. No, I I, I agree. I'm, I'm just, and I, and I do think that there is this, the desire to to solve problems that can be worked out in a, in a I think in a dispassionate way. Um, abortion is decisively not one of the, those issues. I would like to think that education would be one where we sit down and go, okay, what can we do um, to get as many kids into schools that actually work, that are effective? Um, how can we encourage uh, educational practices that we know are effective as opposed to the ones we we wish would be effective? Um, you know, uh, instead of fads, actually. <clears throat> research-based proven things. 
Can we can we enhance opportunity? Can we make the country competitive? That that ought to be a universal consensus. There ought to be universal consensus that we um, make life better for the working and the middle class. Uh, and 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 I, I do think that on areas like, for example, you know, the child credit, that it seems like there's a moment when, if people would just take a deep breath, find out that that you know Mitt Romney and Joe Biden are not necessarily that far apart that we can actually come up with some pro-family, pro-life policies involving child care, involving child credit. Sure. But it's hard to break from those those habits, you know, the, the, the yeah. habits of, you know, us versus them that have been so in, ingrained. <clears throat> well, what, so the duopoly has produced a very effective currency called negative partisanship, right? Yes. And, and we all see it. We might not use those terms, but no. every election is about demonizing the other side. Republicans yeah. are calling the calling Democrats socialists, Democrats calling Republicans authoritarian. Take take the politics of health care, again, keeping it where the rubber meets the road. You know, the Affordable Care Act um, presented three different constituencies. There were those who needed greater access to care. There were those that needed greater affordability. And there were those who saw their health care disrupted, right? They lost their plan. They lost their doctor or their health care costs went up. Republicans only spoke to the third constituency then and now because it allowed them to say, Democrats really screwed you guys. Democrats really came after your health care. And you know it because you lost your doctor, you lost your plan and your prices went up. And that's and and look, that's that's the Jolly family, right? We're in that, we're in that lane. But Democrats got to go to the first constituencies and said, you legitimately needed greater access. You didn't have it through a workplace plan or you needed more affordability because the price of health care has gotten out of whack. And they got to say, we fought for that. OK, what about the coalition that says all three constituencies are valid and their experiences are all equal? So how do we do this? And to your point, is it a Romney Biden type coalition? Hopefully we would see that. The problem is through go back to fair elections, we have so rigged our election process towards hyperpartisanship that that Romney-Biden alliance would never get rewarded and successfully build through a general election in a way that could really change our politics, which leads us to this new party space. And, and look, the same parties that created this dysfunction in Washington have done so in all 50 states. They have made it very hard to build a new party. Uh, we're trying to do it at SAM, but this is a, a decade-long effort, not a, not a month-long effort. No, and it's going to be a, maybe even more than a decade-long effort. So um, last time we spoke, um, you were – you were uh, thinking about possibly making a bid for uh, office in Florida, uh, Florida being a state that seems to be, uh, at least at one point, seemed to be ripe for the possibility of this third way. So give, give me your sense of what you're thinking um, about the lay of the land in Florida right now. The number of uh, very prominent Democrats have announced they're running for yeah, the, yeah. the Senate seat. Uh, Ron DeSantis is obviously very, very polarizing, but seems to be polling relatively well, the Republican governor. So what are you thinking? Yeah, look, I, I desperately want to see an independent candidate or independent coalition emerge, be successful, and show that 40% of voters we're talking about that we can actually do this. Um, I, I have considered, still consider whether or not I would be a candidate that could be successful in doing so. I will tell you the Florida governor's race, um, this is pulling the curtain back a little bit, but any way you test it for an independent candidate like myself, there's a ceiling in about the low 20s. And that doesn't get us there. 
right? That, that wouldn't get an independent candidacy across the finish line. Is it worth fighting the fight, making the case, and hopefully building on something? Yes. Um, but it may be that the better time spent is building out infrastructure for a viable third major party in the state of Florida. The U.S. Senate race is interesting because Democrats just got their heavyweight in Val Demings. And I do think going into the cycle, both Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio are favored in the governor's race and in the U.S. Senate race. Who knows how our politics will change over the next two years? I think if Demings had gotten in either race, she would have been the nominee. I think in the governor's race, she would have beaten Charlie Crist and Nikki Fried in the Democratic primary, and she could have gone toe-to-toe with Ron DeSantis, just as she'll go toe-to-toe with uh, Marco Rubio now in the Senate race. Democrats in Florida haven't won the governor's mansion in 28 years. Um, The last major Democratic heavyweight was Bill Nelson, who lost in 2018, Charlie, Mm -hmm. in a big uh, Democratic year. The Florida Democratic senator actually lost to Rick Scott. Yeah. Democrats are fighting uphill in Florida. I still think the edge goes to Republicans. Yeah. So, I mean, what 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 ifs are always fun. Do you think that the Democrats might have won the governorship if, say, Gwen Graham had been the nominee uh, as opposed to um, – and I'm sorry if I'm slipping on his name. Um, Andrew the, Gillum. Yeah, and, and, Andrew Gillum yeah. uh, against I, DeSantis. You know, I like to think she would have. She's a friend of mine. She would have been a fantastic governor. I would have. I would love to be supporting her in the governor's mansion right now. I, what the Republican consultant would tell you is in that cycle, Democrats got to test a progressive Andrew Gillum in a statewide yes. race. And right. they got to test a moderate Bill Nelson in a statewide race, and they lost both. Yeah, um, There is something going on in Florida that's been going on for about 20 years. Republicans are much better organized. They have better infrastructure. Their consulting class has been more successful. And what's happened is success breeds success. It gives them control of the levers of everything from redistricting to campaign finance to you name it. Um, it here's what it will take in the state of Florida. I was talking to a a top Democratic consultant, I won't name him, but you see him on TV every now and then, who said what the Democrats desperately need is a transformative statewide figure from out of politics, right? A retired general, a business person, a celebrity, <laughs> God help us, uh, but somebody that can, that can completely shock the Florida political system, but just happens to have that Democratic label. They haven't found that person yet. Hmm. So what else are you uh, thinking about looking at this week, uh, David? Well, look, I, I got I've talked about the Serve, Serve America movement, Sam. Check us out at joinsam.org. Charlie, we've got some big announcements coming this summer. We are mobilizing party infrastructure in multiple states. And this is a real cause I'm involved in. I'm passionate about it. I have loved being untethered from kind of the, the two major parties. Um, but beyond that, look, I, I think the politics of, of Washington are going to enter an interesting moment where we really get down to some of the tax and spend issues. And Republicans will use that as a pejorative. I don't. I say it because we're entering that budget phase where the Biden priorities will be debated over the course of the summer and how we pay for them is a legitimate conversation. And I, I hate the whataboutism arguments because look, it's true. Republicans have no credibility on what we're doing with spending, but we are blowing through every spending cap we ever once thought we might have. And so the nation has some decisions to make. How much do we want to spend on what priorities and how are we going to pay for it? That is the fundamental crux of an infrastructure bill. 
Are we going to increase gas taxes, go to user fees? How do we finance infrastructure? How do we finance healthcare? How do we finance all of these priorities? They're legitimate policy decisions. Math is math. But I think we're going to enter that period now of beginning to focus in on the Biden administration's priorities and how to pay for them. David Jolly, thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Bulwark podcast number 601. Great to be with you, Charlie. Thank you. And and thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.